Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today on the show, you people, you've asked for it. I've got somebody to interview John Pigeon. Hey, gents. Hey, Glenn. How hey, are you? Good. Paul, how are you? Great, Glenn. Thanks for having me along. No worries. So, you might know Paul's voice, you little podcast freaks. <laughs> uh, Paul runs a podcast called... Financial Autonomy. Financial Autonomy. He's got there a good go. voice, hasn't he? Yeah, he has. So, I, I've listened to Paul's podcast a little bit and um, we connected Paul at a podcasting event uh, in Melbourne here. Earlier, last, earlier in the year. Was it this year or, or last, year? last year? And um, I think through various other financial planning groups online and whatnot. So, what I thought I would do is people have been saying, we want to know about John and his story. And I'm like, I don't actually care about John and his story. So, <laughs> I thought I would get... Not even sticking around for it. No. So, I thought I would get Paul to, one, interview John. And I think it just works better with someone who doesn't really know you, John. And I certainly fit that bill. And yeah, you do. Never met. And I actually can't be bothered doing it. So, no. there we go. Everyone's so, a winner. I'm going to leave this lovely hotel room looking out over... Is that... Alfred Lake, Albert oh Lake. My gosh. No, Albert Park Lake. Yeah. You're looking out on the Formula One track at the moment, <laughs> actually. It's the first time Glenn's come out of the Central Coast. No, shut up. <laughs> I've actually cycled around that lake. So, someone in... would have cycled for you. Would be sitting no, in the back. shut up. No. <laughs> so I'm going to leave these guys in this lovely hotel room, looking over Albert Park Lake, and I'm going to actually have a nap next door. <laughs> Power nap. So, can you just press stop there when you're finished? Are you guys ready to go? Let's launch. Sweet. You're listening to My Millennial Money. We believe that baby boomers are the reason that this podcast exists. Why should I have to go to random people on the internet and listen to their advice? Why didn't you teach me right? Oh, daddy, oh, daddy, where have you been? <laughs> Well, thanks, Glenn, and uh, great to be a part of My Millennial Money. Thanks very much for inviting me along. Um, and John, obviously, we've only just met, so yes. I'm certainly uh, uh, well qualified to interview you and learn all about you because I'm pretty much zero. Yeah, um, good start. And in fact, I guess where I wanted to start, um, now, the business, Solve, is it Solver Wealth? It Solve seems Air. to have too many E's. Yeah, yeah, I, I was confused. Solver. Solve Air. Air. Ah, yeah. So you need Latin a bit of a French for solution. I like it. Okay, very nice. That's well, the best I could come up with. Yeah, no, good. I, I looked at it about 12 times and I'm, what, yeah. am I, what am I missing here? Right, okay, thank you. Need a bit of Latin. So uh, so my Millennial Money listeners, of course, will know John very well and uh, hopefully uh, after today's episode, you know him even, even a little bit better. So John, I, I thought I might, um, you know, work on a bit of sort of X-Men origin style, uh, you know, let's, let's start mm. at the beginning. Yeah. Um, tell us about your first job. Where did, where did it all, where'd you earn your first dollar? 
Ah, yes, good question. So I grew up in a farm in country Victoria. So looking over Albert Park Lake is very familiar for me, um, being in Melbourne. Um, I did a lot of work on the farm growing up as a kid. That's just natural um, progression as a kid on the farm. But I think our, my pers- our first paid version was uh, rouseabouting in a shearing shed um, just up the road from me. Um, so I think from memory it was like uh, age 13, I think, where I um, first uh, started doing that. Um, and I needed a, I need my ABN, uh, not my ABN, my tax file number. And I was like, I haven't got one. What, what's no, that? Well, what the hell is that? Probably no. hadn't cropped up at that point. <laughs> yeah, so... <laughs> Um, but as a rouseabout, it's pretty hard work, right? But, uh, you get paid really well for it. So, um, yeah, I was pretty keen on the idea of, um, of getting money for the, for the work that I did. So, so did you, did your parents run a sheep farm? Correct. Yeah. So you yeah. sort of knew that you knew the basics, you knew what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Knew what to do, but I just wasn't getting paid when it was on our no. own farm. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> and excuse my ignorance, but a rouseabout, what exactly does that mean you do? Yeah. Um, it basically the the shit kicker of the shed. Uh, <laughs> they um, the shearers are shearing the sheep, and and you have to take the take the wool away from the from them so they can continue their job throughout the day and and clean up and just make sure the area is clean basically. So yeah, the, you run around doing all sorts of different things, pe- penning the sheep up into the yards for them, and yeah, you're you're a, you're a servant to the shearer basically. Yeah, right. I always love the the smell mm. of a shearing shed. It's got a, beautiful it's got a lovely smell. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's good, good for the hands. Yeah, yeah, I'd imagine. All right, mm. so so you've kicked off at about thirteen, and mm. uh, you know you, the family farm, and then the extension that that's mm. led to the job. Where did, where did you take things from there? I mean, did you continue in the shearing shed? Did you become a shearer or these sort uh, of things? No, or you no. Go? I looked at my brother who was shearing. I used to follow him around so wherever he won shearing jobs I used to I used to chase him around and say can I rouse you at, at that shed you're at and and I did that pretty much all school holidays right throughout my um my high school years um at the same time I, I had a little bit of entrepreneurship I didn't know what that looked like at the time but dad used to um run a veggie patch just out the back uh, we had plenty of land obviously and and um I used to say to him look uh, I'll um I'll get rid of those for you. I'll, I'll I'll sell them in town. So I used to jump on the bike and and um, try and sell these tomatoes and carrots and uh, all sorts of bits and pieces to the local cafe owner. <laughs> so <laughs> occasionally I sold some. Some of me said no, they're no good. But um, yeah, I suppose that was my first part of um, entrepreneurship, where you had to try and um, uh, get your products sold and and um, talk talk to people in the real world for. For exchange for your for dollars, yeah, fantastic so, um, uh, skills to pick up. I mean, everything has to be sold, and to, to sort of be working yeah. on those skills, at, you know, at such an early stage, fantastic. Yeah, look, he didn't he didn't give me an inch. He he didn't even drive me into town. He he made <laughs> me uh, ride my bike in, and a lot of it got uh, squashed and and ruined on the way in. But yeah, yeah, it was a great experience to be able to to do that. Um, and then yeah, from there, I suppose uh, I went away to university in Ballarat um, to study. Uh, phys ed teaching actually and uh, so I, I continued to work in the school holidays uh, once I once I, I suppose had enough money to to do something with which back then was probably thousand um, dollars I I actually bought a, a mob of sheep um, my, my brother organized it but I gave him the cash and right um, so that was probably my first real investment um, and that was yeah a, a quick realization that you buy something at a lower value and sell it at a higher value or, or add value to the product, whatever it may be. So for, for me at the time, that was a, 
a mob of old uh, ewes, which are female sheep for the listeners that aren't so familiar with the farm. Um, shore them, or my brother shore them, and um, sold sold the wool off and, and also sold the the ewe um, after fattening them up a bit. So I think um, from memory we, we bought them for $4, so they were just, just above breathing. They were about to go on the boat through to China, I think, uh, and end up selling them for about $12. So tripled our money in that time period. What so, sort of time period are we talking about? Uh, it would have, wouldn't have been six six months, I suppose. Yeah, Fantastic so, result. Um, yeah. And, and did you, I mean, were there adjustment fees and these sort of things to pay or was well, there just spare, spare capacity I, on the family farm? Yeah, I think I still owe my brother for that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see it on the invoice anyway. So, yeah, so that was um, that was early days for me, which is um, at, at the time was, was a bit of fun and it meant that I paid my way through university, I suppose. And, and I think, I mean, my experience, and I mean, I'm interested in your thoughts, but mm. a lot of people, I think, from a, a farming background often do have a bit of, you know, entrepreneurial, uh, you know, aspect about them because, mm. you know, they've grown up in a household where there hasn't been, a, you know, a, a, an amount of money just drop in a bank account every fortnight, you know, and, no. and, and, and growing up with that around the dinner table um, maybe makes you a bit creative and a bit innovative and, and perhaps a bit hungry too. I think so, yeah. And look, and look, we were about three kilometres from town, and and then town was only a population of about three hundred people. So it wasn't as if you're you're going down the local Westfields on a Saturday afternoon. So you do have to fill your own time in, and and I suppose you come up with these weird and wonderful ideas and schemes along the way, yeah. um, whether it be making billy carts or, uh, or 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 making money, one of those things. But yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it was a great lifestyle. I wouldn't have changed it for the world. But I think what the farm did make me realize is that um i saw a mum and dad slave seven days a week to the farm um for for something that's really out of their control and and that that's the weather so if it doesn't rain you really you, your income's really limited so i think it made me realize that uh i I wanted something that was more in my control than out of my control. So, so yeah. I mean, you said you went to uni, you studied PE teaching. So, did you go on and become a teacher and, and pursue I did. that? I did. Oh. Yeah, yeah. No, I always had a passion for sport, um, so I didn't probably work hard enough at school to to do human movement or sports science. So, uh, phys ed teaching was the next logical option. But, um, yeah, so I taught for about four years, and then again got itchy feet and realised that. It, it probably wasn't for me for the next 30 years and, and I wanted something a bit more. So I think a bit of that entrepreneurship mind started to float again. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, it's, it's interesting your observation there on the teaching because mm. I've heard that from a few sources, you know, it's, I mean, really after 10 years, you've, unless you want to become a principal or something, you've, you've yeah. peaked, haven't you? So to, to do yeah. it for 30 years or something, 40 years perhaps. Yeah. And, and look, I know my, my, both my father-in-law and mother-in-law are teachers and they loved it. So like it, it definitely serves well for people that are passionate about it and, and haven't got that itch that they want to scratch. But yeah, for, for me, it was a, it was only a short term thing. I didn't know that at the time, but mm. quickly realized um, once I was in there that uh, I probably needed something more. Oh, all good experience mm. and good learning, though. You know, four years is not wasted. Oh, absolutely. And and from a, I suppose, a talking to people and and all age groups and and um, just being out up in front of people and um, staff members and kids and all that gave me a lot of um, a lot of the skill sets I've got today. So yeah, very grateful for those four yeah. years that I had in the education system. Yeah, great foundations. And at this mm. stage, are you still in rural Victoria, or have you moved by now? No, so. Uh, well, sorry, at the end of that fourth year, I was teaching in Horsham. So I went back home to, to teach or close enough to home. Uh, and then an opportunity came up to, to run a personal training franchise. So 
I took off to Adelaide with that franchise. It was a Victorian franchise, and um, and I it hadn't been exposed to South Australia yet. And I had a couple of mates in in Adelaide, and they they were enjoying themselves. And I mean, looking back on it, it was probably a a, a major risk going to an area where I, I knew really no one had no business experience and and just setting up a, a new life there I suppose but um, I just saw it as a as a great opportunity so uh, I purchased a, a franchise and then went on to um, own the master franchise for the for the state of South Australia for that company um, so yeah so I did Fantastic. that for, for seven or eight years I think it was in the end um, and then sold that and and then moved to the Central Coast, um, which was where my wife to be was was from. Yeah, good a good magnet. So the yeah. the so the seven or eight years where you're building the franchise. Yeah. I mean, just give us your you've started that from nothing at all. What was mm. you know by the end of that? What did you grown that to? Uh yeah. So I think when I sold my initial franchise, I think there was about 120 clients. Oh, um, congratulations. So, yeah. So that was um, it was a great business model. I think it's a great. Um, Again, it was a great um, skill set for me to gain in that. In that, you're, you're motivating people. You're you're always you're accountable to everyone else because you're the head trainer. Um, so all those things that I instill in my coaching today. Um, but yeah, so so I sold that on, and the master franchise. I think there was eighteen franchises. I think that I sold well, um, sold the business with um, with eighteen franchises. Yeah, so Gee. that was good. Fantastic. All right. And then yeah. it's, right, escape uh, cold Victoria. Yeah. Move up somewhere a bit warmer. That's right. A bit more beach activity as well because I understand yeah. that these days you do Ironmans. Is that right? Did I read that somewhere? Uh, yeah, I've been doing Ironmans for about, my first one was 2008, I think right. it was. Yeah, so I had a bit of a break in between with um, with young kids and everything else taking up a bit more of my time. but Understandable. Um, yeah, in the last three or four years I've been uh, doing a few more again. So yeah, yeah, well, from from Horsham, you know, it's a bit hard to get the ocean swim in, I'd imagine. <laughs> That's whereas, right. Uh, yeah, I didn't do too many when I was in Horsham, but um, yeah, Adelaide was a great grounding for, for training oh, course, for something yeah. like that with the Adelaide Hills and plenty of uh, plenty of water there so yeah true enough but mm. still be easier a bit warmer i imagine yeah absolutely yeah especially this time of year in the winter so how did we get into cuz i know that these days you know very much you're the property guru mm. Mm. so where did we where did the property expertise and where did you you know fall into that element yeah and and look i i just realized that we haven't been speaking property at all which uh, no no that's <laughs> was, all right was i mean um, definitely not a part of my my childhood, um, all I knew about property was it was barren and flat, and we uh, <laughs> we we made uh, wheat and sheep and everything else from it. But um, when I went away to university, my I spent a lot of time with my uncle, who was a, a Westpac banker at the time, or just retired actually. Um, and I got into his ear a lot about wealth creation and all these um, types of things because I again had that sort of entrepreneurial thought, and and he said, look the 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 two most common people that walk into my office, um, in terms of of wealth in uh, in the area, has always been the business owner uh, or the property investor. So someone that's got large amounts of property or has their own successful business. Um, so, well, I thought, yeah, well, they're they're, they're two obvious ones. So, um, property made sense to me. I could touch it, feel it, drive past it, um, analyze it, and and my logical country boy thinking was that everyone needs a property um when it was 
property versus shares, I, I, I couldn't see that with a with a share. Um, I didn't know who the board of directors were and all those sort of things. So whereas property logically said, well, I either need to rent it or I want to own it. Um, so let, let's um, clue ourselves up in, in that space. And would it be fair, you know, I'd imagine growing up on a farm, you'd, you'd, you'd tend to be... Uh, you know, you pick up some good skills. You tend to be a bit handy, which as a as a property owner, yeah, uh, you know, is invaluable. Of course, mm. it, 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 was that a factor or not? <laughs> I've, I've got friends that listen to this; they'll be laughing their head off because absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> it's all relative, I guess. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I mean, um, yeah, I've, I've coming off the farm, I would have considered myself reasonably worldly um, because of those things, tinkering around, but. When push came to shove, I was no, I was pretty hopeless, really. Um, but <laughs> all right, so that's but, not a key to success, which is no. valuable for people to know, right? Well, because a lot of people aren't very handy. Yeah. And if you thought that the only way you could be a property investor or you, yeah. you know successful was that you had to have those skills, I guess you're you know yeah. you're, you're saying that's not the case. No, and but I suppose the one thing that I did have was was the willingness and the motivation to to get it done. So. I'd knock the fence down. I'd um, I'd I'd pull a carport down. I'd I'd do whatever needs to be done there, which was just use of grunt, I suppose. Um, and then get the expertise in to to um f- finish the job off that needed to be done. So, yeah, I think that it's more the the attitude and the motivation that that that's the key to that, not necessarily uh, whether you're handy or not. But, Skill, uh, yeah. And so, where did the property investment kick off? Then was that in Adelaide? <laughs> yeah. Or? So. When I went back to uni, uh, sorry, when I went back to Horsham with my first teaching job, um, it was when I started to earn reasonable dollars. I think as a teacher, we used to come out on about 55000 or something like that as a 21-year-old. Fantastic. It was yeah. okay. Um, so that's when I started to save a bit of money. And, and, um, and at the time, he was always of the opinion, rent until you can um, – use your cash to, to buy your principal place of home outright. Uh, and for me at the time, that was out of the box thinking. I, I'd never thought about that because the Australian dream was to own your own home, wasn't it? So, That's right. You do that first and then you think about investment yeah, properties. Yeah, rent money's dead money and all that sort of stuff. So um, he got me on that train of thought and, and continued to live that basically for the next 15 years. So my first property was an investment property in Horsham. Um, local, knew it, all those sort of things. Um, wanted to add some value to it. Corner block, um, close to the CBD. Picked it up for sixty four thousand. Um, so back in the times, just be- year before the first homeowners grant, so I was shattered. I missed out on that. <laughs> um, but any case, uh, rented out. I think it was rented for about an eight percent yield, so it wasn't costing anything to hold. Um, and the, but looking back on it, there wasn't a lot of science. Like I, if I look at my strategies today, I would have laughed at how I went about buying this thing. But um, again, it was just logic, and and fortunate enough that in the next two years it doubled in value. So, um, and it was actually with my sister. So we put in, I think we put in about three grand each to <laughs> to buy this property. Yeah, um, but you, you made you know made a start, haven't you? And that's what you need. That's right. And when I went to buy the franchise, um, one rule in real estate for me with with a lot of the clients I work with is never sell unless you have to. Um, looking back on it, I sold it because I wanted to buy into um, fitness franchise and get out of teaching. So it served a purpose and it gave me um, a, a business um, 
that I obviously yeah, that you could build grown. and grow. Yeah, so it wasn't uh, necessarily dead money, but mm. um, yeah, so that was my first um, attack at, at at property investing. And when you when your first property doubles in two years, you you think you're a rock star, don't you? But uh, <laughs> I think um, I I had a lot still to learn about um, doing it to to build wealth for the long term. That's for sure. And would you? I mean, I don't want to sort of get too much into the weeds, mm. but. But you know, commentary that I have heard around property investment is to just be wary in rural areas because sometimes they're slow to move, yeah. they're slow to find tenants, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Obviously, you know, you, you know, had a fantastic outcome on that that, mm. that one. But um, you know, reflecting on it, I mean, you know, was it difficult to sell at the time? Was it you know, were there any issues around that? Yeah, I don't think so. And and it was the stars aligned in in the sense that we wanted to sell it at a time when the market was pretty buoyant. Um, but yeah, looking back on it, the next seven years, eight years after that were pretty flat. Right. So yeah, it, it, I can only put it down to luck. I didn't know too much about property cycles back then. Um, you're right, regional towns historically don't have massive growth in short time periods. And I, I, stri- I stroke it lucky. There's no doubt about that in that two-year period. Um, but um, yeah, traditionally r- regional centres have a better rental yields that's for sure uh, you definitely cover your cash flow of your property a lot easier than you will in a in a in a city center but yeah might not have the the growth consistency long term and would you say that initial property transaction because i mean from what you've said you've turned you know three grand into what 60 grand or something yep. right? so it's not just that the property's double but no. through gearing you, you've done a heck of a lot better than that i mean yeah. was that and i know you said you put that into the business but then you ultimately sold the business etc mm. so was that the foundation stone, do you think? Was that the pivotal transaction or have there been other transactions along the journey that have really, really made the difference for you? Yeah, I think there's there's been small components of a, of a number of things over the years that have, that have built um, to where I am today. Um, I, I think when, when I was running a business in Adelaide, um, we, once it was off the ground, I started investing again. Um, and again, that was in Adelaide and then diversified into Melbourne and then Sydney. Um, so with mixed results, to be honest, like there was one of them that was a shitter that I, I if I had my time again, I wouldn't have done, but I, I think, I, so I'm not sitting here saying I've just had a, had a glory run and, and got everything right every time. Um, well, I mean, investment entails risk. I mean, that, that's mm. why you get the return that you do compared to it sitting in the bank, right? So if, yeah. if everything went right all the time, well, then that wouldn't, that wouldn't marry up with the risk, would it? No, that's right. And, and as you mentioned, the, the leveraging effect of what money's been able to do through property and, and obviously business has been fantastic for me, that turning three into 60s is, is it in three years or two years is a pretty good outcome for sure. um, in anyone's language. Um, but yeah, the, I, I suppose I bought, um, on good advice, a property in Sydney back in 2012 and that was just before Sydney boomed and, and for the listeners today, they probably only know Sydney going up in value and that was all. But prior to that, there was probably six or seven years of flat growth in Sydney or, or sorry, flat, um, no movement at all, basically. So when when people were when I told people I was going to buy in Sydney, um, it, the naysayers were were there left, right, and centre, and it was in a suburb that again I wouldn't have chosen to live, um, and it was my first real experience of 
keep your emotion out of it and, and just act with logic and research and, and, um, and purpose. Um, so yeah, fast forward four years that, um, that pretty much doubled in, in value, um, on the back of that. Um, and that, that also started with a good rental yield, but, um, but yeah, I think if I had have listened to the naysayers and, and listened to my emotion that said, I, I'm, I wouldn't live in that house or that suburb. Why would anyone else? Um, I wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have seen that result. So, I mean, well, what did get you over the line? So you've said the rental yield was good. So was that enough to say, Hey, look, the numbers stack up here. I'm just going to ignore the gut or mm. you know, what pushed you over the line to say, yeah, I'm going to do this. Yeah. Look, I, I, I like the research that I saw. There's, there's no doubt about that. And I was a, a more of a worldly investor by then. It wasn't just uh, my first crack at it. Um, but secondly, I, I'm a big believer in listing the worst that can happen, right? So what's the, the top two things that can, can happen as a worst case? Um, and my worst case is if this property doesn't go up in value, the cash flow is holding its own anyway, right? right? So I could hold it, even if I lost my job, I could still service that property okay because of the rental yield of the property at the time. So my worst case wasn't that bad. Um, yeah, yeah. So, and, and I didn't hate teaching back in the time, but I've always lived the life since is, is if nothing works out in my business or my property investing or anything else, I'll go back to being a teacher. Um, <laughs> so that probably drives me to do more things because of the, uh, the, the, um, fear of that. <laughs> <laughs> but at least, you know, you know, you know, it's there and it's a skill you can draw on if you need yeah, to. Yeah, that's right. So just, yeah. just to circle back. So you said that, you know, the advice from your uncle, you know, mm. a bit, um, you know, a bit different to the norm was, mm. you know, don't buy, buy, buy investment properties, rent them out, rent where you want to live and only buy the house you want to live in until yes. you're in a position where you can just pay cash for the house you want to live in. Yes. So you've moved up to the central coast, mm. um, you know, uh, wife, kids, all the rest. Yeah. Were you able to follow his advice? Were you able to, at the <laughs> point that you bought the home that you lived in, yeah, be mortgage free? Because I mean, that would be a rare, a rare Australian that achieves that. Absolutely, absolutely. And um, my wife, um, again, very similar traits and morals and interests as well. So she had already done some property investing, and she was also a, a personal trainer. So <laughs> we perfect fit. We, we had a couple be. of topics. The only thing she didn't understand was AFL, so I had to train her up on that. Oh, but well. <laughs> essentially, <laughs> we came together knowing that, yeah, we both have our interests. We want to continue property investing. So. To sell the rent theory to her was was no no issue, right? Good. But as soon as the kids started to come along, things get a little bit more complicated. And um, and, and look, we we could be still renting today if we wanted to, but I think it was just a time in our life, and it was only twelve months ago um, right. where we said, "Yeah, we're going to buy our home to live in." Um, the previous investment to that was a. Uh, live in our own home, but create an investment out of it. And that was building a duplex, um, okay. living in one. And then we stayed there for four years and then sold that on. Um, so that obviously had a benefits because of the capital gains tax free, um, but also adding value to the land and, and, uh, and creating some equity that way. So yeah, in answer to the question, yes, we've still got a mortgage, um, but we, there's no way we would have been able to afford where we are today. Uh, if it wasn't through those transactions over the years, um, and you've still got some investment properties, I assume. Correct. Yeah. So we the the long and short of it is, we've still able to hold our portfolio without having to um, 
to sell down and, and buy our own home. So, And presumably, yeah. if you wanted to be debt-free on your personal home, I mean, you could be by selling some investment properties, but it's a yep. choice you've made that, that that's not what you want to do. That doesn't make correct. sense to you. Yeah, correct. Yeah, so it's, um, yeah. And, and obviously, uh, our kids at the moment are, um, what are they, six, eight, and ten, so... I think so. Anyway, <laughs> somewhere around that. <laughs> um, don't uh, don't worry about the minor details. But um, so they're at a time in their life where schooling's important, and um, we we want to be surrounded by their their friends and family. And um, yeah, is it, there's definitely a different focus to what there was ten years ago w- without any kids. Yeah, yeah, of course. And you got to you got to embrace that time of life, haven't you? I mean, before yeah. you know it, they're adults, and uh, sure. you don't want to be looking back and thinking, "I wish I had been a bit more involved." So. No, that's right. Yeah, and I think like people say to me, "Oh, look, I'm not investing because um, we're focusing on our kids." Um, and I say under my breath, or maybe to them, depends on how well I know them. That that's rubbish. Like I think you, we've made some of our biggest wealth advancements in the last ten years than we have at the ten years prior. Um, I think because there's a greater drive to set ourselves up, but also look after the kids as well. So Mm. I I think where there's a will, there's a way, isn't there? So, um, I think, yeah, it's, it's just staying on track regardless of, um, of, of what's happening in your life at the time. Hey, Laura. Hey, Glenn. When you and Nathan like get married, start a family and, Mm -hmm. and be all cute and want to buy a house and get a mortgage... Where are you going to get your mortgage? I'm going to go to a mortgage broker. Well, no, you're going to go to sortyourmoneyout.com <laughs> and then click get help. Yes. And I'm going to ask you a couple little questions and introduce you to a mortgage broker that is best suited for you because why don't we want to go to a bank, Laura, directly? Banks are bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So basically, a mortgage broker, they will look at your situation and recommend the most appropriate loan for your circumstances. Indeed. I think that sounds really good. So, what's the website again? It's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Perfect. It's as simple as that. That is very simple. And remember, Laura, it's not a house, it's a home. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to, um, I guess, just, you know, take a a slight uh, change of tack. So, I know that uh, you know, in terms of your business, you're you're helping people uh, and coaching people around property investment. Um, and I just wondered, like, when you're first speaking with with prospective clients, obviously they've come to you because they've got an interest in property. Mm. Um, what's the number one question that you hear from people that are thinking about heading down that path? Uh, as a first time investor, it's it's where do I start? It's and and where do I buy? That they're probably the the common two. I like to I like to pre-frame it by saying, "What are your three biggest fears?" Not only in property investing, but in life, right? And let's let's address those first, and now say, "Right, let's relate this back to property." What's your three biggest fears for for investing in property? And are there some common ones that you hear? Look, without a doubt, it's a rental vacancy. Okay. Um, so yeah, what if my my house isn't tenanted? Mm-hmm. Uh, the second one would be what if the tenant trashes the place? Yeah. Um, and the, and the third one would be probably what if I lose my job? Yeah. 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 So uh, I think you can overcome all three of those to a degree. Um, but as you know, Paul, everything's any investing's a risk. Um, it's a risk to get out on your in your car and go for a drive, isn't it? So oh, I that's mean, it. Yeah, and, and I mean, 
you know, investment wise, you can take no risk and mm. leave it all in the bank and earn one percent if you're lucky. But Correct. you know, it's going to take you a long time to save up the sort of money that you might need to do other things and yeah, that's retire right. or whatever it is that you aspire to. You know, so uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And and I think my and this may or may not have uh, been as a result of this, but my father passed away when I was um, first year of uni, so just turned eighteen, um, and. I've always had the the motto of of never have regrets because um, I think maybe because I was forced to mature reasonably early without my father around and and knowing that I'd never see him again, it's like, well, what would I have done in the time if I knew that it was only going to be a short time? So mm. I think I approach life like that and and implore my clients to to take the same approach. And I think you, you know, you touched on earlier about thinking, well, well, what's the worst that can happen, mm. which then kind of is a way to maybe overcome, you know, the fear, the downside fear. Mm. And sometimes too, if you can, all right, well, what's the worst? Well, the worst can happen is, you know, lose the job, let's say. Mm. Well, what do we have to do? Well, worst case, we've got to put the property on the market. All right, well, you know, how's that going to play out? I mean, you're yeah. not going to lose all your money, are you? But worst case, you're down 20 grand or something like that. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, instead of retiring at sixty, we retire at sixty-one. I mean, it's you know, it's that's not right. the end of the world. Still, right? still a good result. So yeah, yeah I can mm. I'd see how you could work that through. Mm. Um, so a key element of 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 property investing or just property generally is, is is the ability to gear against it. Right. Yeah. That's To me, at least, it's it's greatest attribute. Yeah. Um, and obviously, it's you know important for you in kicking mm. off. What, what's your thoughts around gearing levels and safe gearing levels and and, and sort mm. of have you got any sort of rules of thumb around that? Um, I probably don't have a rule of thumb. I just I just like to implore to my clients that what the options are. Uh, like in today's lending, um, two thousand and nineteen, you can go up to ninety five percent of its value. Right. In in some cases, if you look hard enough, right. Um, so if you if your situation is that you can only put down a 5% deposit and you've got your foundations in life with in regards to your insurances and your in your cash flow management systems and you're not in debt and all those sort of things and and your your yield on the property for that particular purchase is solid um then knock yourself out and go because 5% deposit means that you can save another 10% to put into another property right um, so I've never got a hard and fast, you must have 20%. Um, and in my investing time, the only time I put in a 20% deposit was when I had to, when the bank said you need a 20% deposit. Um, but that's not for everyone. Um, people see some perceived risk with going higher than that. Um, if you wanted to talk about lenders mortgage insurance, that that's a cost of doing business for me. Um, but I know the, the, the pitfalls of, of, of um, going above eighty percent is you have to pay LMI. Mm. Yeah, and let's say you know because so you're in a scenario of multiple investment properties. Mm. So let's say you've got one or two investment properties; they've appreciated in value. So you've got a bit of equity there. Mm. You could potentially buy your second one without putting any deposit down and just having the bank. I mean, is that something that that, that you know, so effectively you're borrowing hundred yeah. percent of the new place. Would you be comfortable with that or would you always like to see some sort of deposit down? Yeah, hundred percent. Look, my first uh five properties were no money down. Yeah. yeah. Just use the equity so from the other ones. Always been equity. Yeah. So I think if you can get away with that, you've um yes, you geared highly, 
But if you've bought well with the right rental yields, and that's where I think people go lo- wrong a lot of the time, is they they look f- they buy property for capital growth, but don't think about the the cash flow of the property and and factor in one uh, or two percent interest rate rise or four weeks of vacancy a year. So the cash flow actually chews them up and spits them out the back. Um, so I think, yeah, leveraging is ideally, um, the way to go because going back to my uncle, it's borrow, uh, you use the bank's money and, and keep your own, right? Yep. That's, um, that was another one of his wisdom tips for me, but, um, yeah. And, and especially today, like I think for those listening, you would, you'll look back in 10 years time and say, I should have taken more action when interest rates were 4%. <laughs> Well, that's a perfect segue, actually, because that was where I wanted to go next, right? Mm. I mean, we're in unprecedented times in terms of interest rates mm. and you know, and how low they are. And the expectation is that the Reserve Bank's going to cut lower. And that's mm. not just an Australian phenomenon. That's a global phenomenon. I mean, in fact, globally, Australian rates are still kind of high. Yes. Um, so... You know, that, that really seems to be, in the investment world, a, a game changer. How do you see that playing out towards, I guess, property broadly, but especially, uh, you know, strategies around building wealth through property, this sort of new environment that we seem to be in of, of almost free money? It's not quite, but, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's cheap. Yeah, I think it's look at it. It's exciting times, and for me as an investor, it's always an exciting time because there's always a new opportunity somewhere, you know. But I think where people may go wrong is is they they're buying to their maximum according to what the banks will lend them for their principal place of residence. So they're actually drowning themselves in large debt or large bad debt, which is their own mortgage, um, right. as opposed to borrowing for wealth creation assets now your own mortgage essentially is a wealth creation asset right but it's it's not an income producing asset so you need to house that in the event of uh, job loss or something like that whereas um, if you've got an income producing like uh, property like a uh, an investment property then you can continue to leverage off that and um, I think uh, yes you can get a loan at four percent but people people's lives are uh, acclimatized to a lifestyle of interest rates of 4%, right? Whereas if they were paying their bad debt down at 6% instead of 4%, when, when uh, interest rates go back up, they'll be already adjusted to that, right? Um, so if there's an interest rate cut of, say, 0.25%, which there was last month or earlier this month, uh, you, you still should be paying the... the the money that you were paying the month before and not just saying, oh, I get to pay less now or less interest. Um, so so that's interesting. So then on the for investment properties, because, I mean, there are plenty around who would say, well, you go interest only on investment mm. properties. Now, in recent years, the banks have made that a bit more challenging. Yeah. But through your experience in years, bank rules aside, what would be mm. your preference, interest only or, or principal and interest? I. For your own home uh, that you live in, that's that's considered bad debt. I'd say um, definitely principal and interest, and and any dollar you've got put in the offset account against it. Uh, for an investment property, as as much as you can get away with it, interest only. Yeah. Until you've got no bad debt in your life, which is your own mortgage. Um, so if you're if you're a rent investor out there that's got five investment properties, then you might consider paying down some principal on on one or two of them. However, 
it, it does restrict you from creating more cash deposits for further wealth. Mm. So it, it's a, it's definitely a fine line. Um, do you want one one asset of five hundred thousand paid off completely, or do you do you want five properties worth five hundred thousand um, with ninety percent owing on all of them? Leveraging effect tells me over the next ten years that two and a half million dollar portfolio will outperform the the one five hundred thousand dollar property. Yeah, again, it's it's I guess it's how much risk you want to take on, isn't it? Correct. You know, it just yeah. depends on. Your degree no. of aggressiveness there. Yeah, well, it's not even aggressiveness, I don't think. It's just knowing your numbers on the way in. Yeah. Like yeah. if you know your cash flow of your portfolio well before you purchase it, then um, then it's a it's a very calculated um, assessment or, or, or risk, if you want to call it. So when you're thinking about a new investment property and you, you know, you've spoken about cash flow, which makes a lot of sense, if you know that you've got the cash flow there to perhaps cover the interest even, which mm. would be lovely, then, then it de-risks the whole transaction enormously. Yep. So when you're thinking about a new investment, are you starting with how much income does this property generate and then I'll think about does it have growth potential or are you starting at growth but then trying to find something that will first and foremost it grows yeah. but oh, I can make the numbers work on the income side. What's sort of what's the priority there? Yeah, good question. Uh, I think when, when we look at two ways we can we can make money, it's it's capital growth or appreciation of the asset or cash flow. Now, which one's going to give you more choices in life? Um, definitely over the long term it's it's capital growth and and the leveraging effect or the the compounding effect of money so i I think you've got to look at uh definitely the capital growth aspect but it's the least thing in your control isn't it right we we don't know yeah we can do our as much research as we want but if it's um in five years time there's a good chance that it hasn't gone up in value at all cash flow has some certainty about it so i think it's capital growth focused but a very close second is knowing the cash flow that you need in that property for your portfolio and for your life i think that's where the people go wrong yeah okay that's fantastic wisdom to share and and i guess maybe um you know, to maybe round things up, I suppose, where do you see in the current climate, where do you see opportunities? You know, particular mm. cities, are you city, are you rural, are you freestanding, are you apartments, are you what, what, what sort of, where do you see the good opportunities at the minute? Yeah, good good question. Um, I think there's, I, I released a hotspot uh, list earlier in the year, actually. Right. Um, where can people find that? And uh, they can find it on my website, um, solveairwealth.com.au. Um and I think I, I still I still stick with those. Um, I like uh, in the last four years, basically Melbourne and Sydney have both gone up by conservatively sixty to eighty percent in value in most suburbs. Right, as housing market, I'm talking, not apartment. Hmm. So if you missed that growth, um, where the question is, where would you go? Now, what's happening is. Sydney and Melbourne are becoming unaffordable now to buy into for a lot of uh, mums and dads, first home buyers, those sort of things. So as a little bit of urban sprawl, I believe, um, and affordability of, well, what's within an hour of those centres that um, that we can still catch a train into the city to work and, and have a lifestyle on the weekend but not be mortgaged to the hilt for the next 30 years because I've got a million-dollar loan. Um, so I, I quite like regional centres like um, Ballarat, Bendigo, Geelong, 
in in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, so talking locally here while I'm while I'm down here in Melbourne. Yeah. Because um, because you can buy you can buy a three bedroom home in um, Bendigo, for example, for three hundred thousand. Um, mm. That as an investor would um, probably rent it about a five percent or just just short it maybe two eighty two ninety a week. So again, when I think back to my uh, Sydney property, what's the worst that can happen? Well, the cash flow is looking after itself in the next five years. Um, now we obviously don't want you want some growth out of it, but yeah, you want some growth out of it. But um, yeah, I, I see some definite upside in there when. You're wrestling with million dollar suburbs in in the majority of uh, Melbourne. Fantastic. Yeah. And I was well, I was going to leave it there, but that's just sparked me with one other question, yeah. <laughs> which is okay. So now you're in the, the central coast of New South Wales. You're yeah. talking about you know you like the look of properties in Bendigo and these sort of mm. things, which means that if there's you know maintenance issues, you know you're not around the corner to do anything about no. it. So how how do you overcome that? Yeah, good question. And and at the moment, out of our portfolio. There's there's probably only one property that we could drive to, um, realistically to to fix it if I had to if I was handy enough. <laughs> so I think over the over the years I've I've learnt to recruit really good property managers and really good teams of people around those property managers. So uh, understanding what questions to ask to recruit a property manager in the first instance and then making sure they've got a, a good solid team of people that can can do the work for them because um, I think look a, a, a bad tenant is not a bad property manager it's a bad landlord it's a bad landlord for choosing the wrong property manager yeah mm. interesting okay well that's another good you know sort of gold gold tip there for people looking yeah. to get in that yeah the property mm. managers the property managers the key and, and don't yeah. let don't let geography prevent you from getting into an investment that in other respects makes a lot of sense yeah that's right and it and it's it's really emotion isn't it i i wouldn't buy there because it's too far away i wouldn't buy there because it's uh lower socio well if the numbers stack up and the research there what's the what's the risk i mean people buy bhp shares but do they know where bhp head office is quite right yeah Um, yeah and and your diversification benefits too mm. different markets are going to move yeah, move differently. Oh, yeah. fantastic! Well, look, thank you, John. Thanks for uh, for sharing your wisdom there, and I'm sure no the My Millennial Money uh, crew will be glad to. You know, they've obviously heard you week after week, but yeah. to sort of get a bit of a background and, and to learn a bit more, mm. I think um, you know they'll all be better for it, and certainly I'm better for it too. So, yeah. so thanks very much for uh, for giving us some of your time today. Thanks, Paul. It's a pleasure. See you, guys. If you are after personal financial advice, this podcast is not for you. In fact, it's a general advice podcast. But if you do want somebody to talk to, jump onto sortyourmoneyout.com and click on get help and I'll be able to put you in touch with an advisor or a mortgage broker who can actually sit down with you or have a Skype or a Zoom meeting and really work out what you need based on your own personal circumstances. My Millennial Money supports A21. A21 is a non-profit organisation that exists to abolish slavery everywhere. These guys rescue real people from human trafficking across the world. If you want to learn more about how you can contribute to the fight against human trafficking, check out a21.org forward slash au. Remember, we hang out on Insta at My Millennial Money. If you're a regular listener, you're welcome to join our Facebook group. If you want more money hacks, be sure to subscribe to My Millennial Money Express.
It's short money hacks anywhere, anytime, right into your ears. Any advice in this podcast is of a general nature only and has not been tailored to your personal circumstances. Please seek personal advice prior to acting on this information. Before making a decision to acquire a financial product, you should obtain and read the product disclosure statement relating to that product. Opinions constitute our judgment at the time of issue and are subject to change. Neither the licensee, any of the National Australia Group of Companies, nor their employees or directors give any warranty of accuracy nor accept any responsibility for errors or omissions in this podcast. Glenn James, Urban Ghetto Proprietary Limited, trading as Sort Your Money Out, are authorised representatives of Apogee Financial Planning Limited, AFSL 230689. You're listening to My Millennial Money. Here at the podcast, we believe that if you're a baby boomer and you're listening, that this is mostly your fault. The reason that we need to get this information from strangers from the internet is because of you. Let's do that again. You're listening to My Millennial Money. Here at the podcast, we believe that baby boomers are the reason that this podcast exists. If you're a baby boomer and you're listening, then this is your fault. Why should I have to go to random people on the internet and listen to their advice? Why didn't you teach me right? Oh, daddy, oh, daddy, where have you been? (laughs) Why you not come home? (laughs) What's that from? I don't know. (laughs) Pesky daddy. Pesky daddy. This podcast goes out to Freda Frelcher from Cranston. <laughs> You're listening to My Millennial Money. This episode is dedicated to Freda Felcher from Cranston. She'll get you hook, line, and sphincter. <laughs> I remember you talking about her, yeah. <laughs> Felcher from Cranston. Yeah, well, I remember you talking about it. <laughs> uh, just do one more Glenn's mum. Yep. If Glenn could stop. Uh, if, Glenn's if Glenn's mum, mum could, could stop, stop adding. Mum, yeah, yep. that'd be great. Yep. <laughs> You're listening to My Millennial Money. If Glenn's mum could stop adding non-millennials to the Facebook group, that'd be great. <laughs> Shout out, Wendy. <laughs> On your Wendy. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.